Well, we look forward to Easter Sunday morning when, of course, we rejoice over the resurrection from the dead of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for these next three Sundays, as I've said already, let's consider from the Gospels of Mark and Luke and John the, the crucifixion and the death of our Saviour. All of the Gospel writers record the nighttime arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then in varying amounts of detail between them, uh, with each of the writers either including or omitting certain events which took place, we read of those Jewish leaders dragging Jesus from pillar to post to Jewish officials and to the Roman governor in the hope that someone will find Jesus guilty of something sufficient that he can be put to death. Many brought false accusations against him, but the whole thing just turned into a farce. So eager were they to try and find something that would stick, they kept contradicting one another as they brought their false testimonies against Jesus. And all the time, Jesus was being beaten and abused and mistreated. Of course, it was also through those hours of darkness that we read of Peter's denial of Christ as well. Eventually, the local Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, gives in to their demands. He has found Jesus innocent of any crime. But there's a custom at the time of Passover that a Jewish prisoner should be set free. You can read of that back in verse 6 of Mark 15. And it seems totally reasonable to Pilate that Jesus should be the one who's released. After all, he can't even find that he's guilty of anything. But the baying mob shout all the louder for Jesus to be crucified and that another man, they choose Barabbas, a man who's a convicted murderer, that he should be set free instead. And so Barabbas it is who's released and Jesus is sent to be crucified. And so it's at that point today and on the next two Sundays that we'll be picking up the story and the account of Christ crucified. And, and the title for this little series of three is very simple. We preach Christ crucified. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians when he was with them, says he was preaching and teaching and determined not to know anything amongst them except the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. His whole ministry centred upon the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sinners. The only thing he wanted to impress upon people is that you need this risen Saviour who died for your sins. And he just repeated this message over and over again. Every time he talked to them, he was constantly and repeatedly leading them to Christ. No doubt, as we see him doing in the letter to the Romans, taking them back into the Old Testament Scriptures and showing them Christ there 
explaining the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures as it is so easy to do. He had nothing else for them but Christ. There's a very real sense in which nothing else really matters but Christ. If you're a Christian, you'll know and understand that. At least I hope you do. That really nothing else matters but Christ. So that's what we're going to be doing ourselves in a very particular and focused way on these next three Sunday mornings. Because without Christ, we have nothing. Without Christ, we are nothing. Without Christ, there is nothing worth preaching. Because without Christ, there is no hope of salvation. Without Christ, there is nothing that can change where we're all heading in our sins. Without Christ, there's nothing. And these events just show how vast is the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of God's love for sinners in the person of Jesus Christ. We've been horrified by some of the images coming out of Ukraine as civilians, including even children, are targeted by such evil. But the Bible calls us to reflect upon the sufferings of one who is the eternal and sinless God who came into the world as a man in order that he might give himself as a lamb to the slaughter. It's the reason he came. These sufferings voluntarily endured to deliver sinful men and women like ourselves from hell and from a lost eternity. Let us not forget, as we dwell upon this wonderful story, that we and our sins were the reason for all of this suffering that Christ endured, because he loved us and was ready to give himself for us. So as we consider Mark and his account of the crucifixion. Let's begin at verse 15. And the, the story begins with Jesus being delivered into the hands of the Roman soldiers. And he suffers at their hands. Please note that even before the Roman soldiers got to work on, on him, Jesus had already been scourged under Pilate's instructions. Now let me tell you, that was a pretty horrific ordeal on its own, being scourged by the Romans. Roman, Roman scourging would not simply open up wounds on your back. It would actually rip the flesh from your back. Too severe a scourging could kill a man on its own. Je Jesus was scourged then handed over to the Roman soldiers. And then proceeds the most appalling humiliation and cruelty against the Son of the Most High. 
The whole Roman garrison gathers together to make sport of the Saviour. They put a purple robe on him, purple clothing being the, the symbol of royalty, in their own minds, caricaturing him as a supposed king. A twisted garland of thorns placed upon his head as a would-be crown. And they pretend to venerate him as a king. They beat him over the head, forcing those thorns deep into his skull. They spit on him. What, what an insult it is to be spat upon. In my days in the bank, I was once threatened by a most unsavoury character of a certain ethnicity that if I didn't give him what he wanted, he would spit in my face. Actually said it right in front of me, 18 inches away from me, with real venom. In his culture, you see, if you wanted to demonstrate your utter revulsion and condemnation of someone, to spit in their face is about as strong as it gets, short of actually hitting them. Well, he didn't get what he wanted, and thankfully I didn't get spat on. But it was touch and go for a few minutes, I think. But it wasn't for Jesus, it was relentless. It was relentless. They do everything they can to mock him and insult him and to ridicule him. And we read, don't we, that the Lord Jesus Christ remains silent like a sheep to the slaughter because he knew this was why he came. He knew these things must be endured. Do you think Jesus was ignorant of Isaiah chapter 53? Still he came. During his ministry, Jesus had made it clear that it is for this that he's come. Do you remember what he said in John chapter 10, where Jesus uses the imagery of himself as the good shepherd and we as his sheep? And of course, it's more than just imagery. We actually know the realities of those things. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I lay down my life, Jesus said. No one takes it from me. That's an interesting thing he said, isn't it? The Romans thought they were about to take his life from him. Oh no, said Jesus. The Jewish leaders thought we're about to take his life from him and about time too. Oh no, said Jesus. No one takes my life from me. After all, he is God. No, I have come and I am laying down my life for sinners. That's why he came. I lay it down of myself. And you think, but he was taken by human hands, 
human hands nailed him to a cross. Ah, yes. But only because Christ permitted them to do so. And gladly submitted to their evil that he might save you from your sins. And here is Jesus, his body covered in stripes and and bruises, just as Isaiah said. And why? Why? Well, I can't put it any better or clearer than a few lines that J.C. Ryle wrote. Listen, he before whom the whole world will one day stand and be judged allowed himself to be sentenced unjustly and given over into the hands of wicked men, that we, the poor, sinful children of men, believing on him, might be delivered from the pit of destruction and from the torment of the prison of hell, that we might be set free from every charge in the day of judgment, and be presented faultless before God the Father with exceeding joy. It was that we, vile as we are, might have glory, honour, and eternal life through faith in Christ's atonement. It was done that we might be received into God's kingdom with triumph at the last day, and receive the crown of glory that never fades away. Christ wore a crown of thorns that you might wear a crown of glory. It was that we who have no righteousness of our own might not stand naked before God at the last day, but be clothed in the perfect righteousness that Christ has wrought out for us. It was done that we who are all defiled with sin might have a wedding garment wherein we may sit down by the side of angels and not be ashamed. He was handed over to Roman soldiers, but it wasn't they who took their life from him. He lay it down of himself for sinners like you and me. And then from verse 21, having endured their ridicule, Jesus is delivered up to die, and even the death of the cross. Convicted men and women were often compelled to carry their own cross to the place of execution, but it seems that even the Roman soldiers can see that it's too much to expect that Jesus would be physically capable of carrying that cross after all the punishment he's already endured. For those soldiers, they would be in big trouble if he died before he was crucified. They they need to keep him alive, because crucifixion is the mode of death. And biblically and theologically, Jesus must get to that cross, and God ensured that he did. Crucifixion is the sentence that must be applied. And so they simply choose at random someone from the crowd and that unfortunate bystander gets to do it. And in this case, it's Simon of Cyrene. 
It's thought by many that the fact that Mark mentions the names of his two sons means that his early readers would have known exactly who these people were, Alexander and Rufus. Cyrene is in North Africa. Uh, some suggest that, his, that this Simon became a believer. He may well have done. Some think he might have been uh, Simeon, who we read of as a leader in the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Well, we, we can't be certain. But what a thing it was for Simon to do. What a thing it was that he got to do if he was a Christian later. What a role he has in God's unfolding plan of salvation as he carries the cross on which Christ would be crucified. But of course we mustn't get too carried away with ourselves with these kinds of things. Such things have often led to idolatrous worship of saints and relics and the like. But it's nevertheless, it's a sobering thought to ponder for a moment or two. To have carried that cross upon which Jesus would suffer and die. But it must always be Christ who we're fixing our gaze upon. It must always be Christ who remains at the centre of everything that's taking place here. And so they go outside of the city wall to a place of execution, a place called Golgotha, place of the skull. Over the years, certain sites have been suggested outside of modern-day Jerusalem where that execution may have taken place. We can't be absolutely certain. But there Jesus is crucified. Victims are usually stripped naked when they are crucified. Nails pierced through the base of the hands and through the feet. And the cross dropped, not gently lowered, into a small hole in the ground, tearing at those pierced limbs. And crucifixion is one of the most painful and humiliating methods of execution anyone's ever come up with. There are worse things. But in its day, it was seen not only as a tortuous way to die. Sometimes people could hang there for days before they died but it was also seen as a most shameful way to die. Hanging there, naked. And often the subject of the kind of abuse and ridicule that Jesus endured, but his probably worse than most. And crucifixion was usually reserved for those whom Rome had vanquished, common criminals. The Romans often used it as a form of deterrent against unrest or opposition amongst the nations it had conquered. You be careful, sunshine, or you'll be next. A Roman citizen was never crucified. It was an undignified and shameful way to die. They never inflicted it upon a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were usually put to death by the sword that at least was quick and much more honourable. And then a final insult was the plaque which was nailed above Christ's head, King of the Jews. Now it was true, of course. We understand that, but nobody then believed it. This is what we think of your King. This is what we do to your King. 
some king this is. Did anyone watching at the time recognize or understand the reality which they were observing? Well, during the course of that day, perhaps a few did. The centurions seemed to. The sign above Christ's head, of course, is what makes this crucifixion so unique. Countless thousands were crucified, but none like this man. Those five words, the king of the Jews, this is the king of the Jews. Those five words are what places that cross bearing that man at the center of human history. This is the king of the Jews. Actually, he's so much more than that. This is the king of kings. This is the creator, yielding himself to those who he has created in order that he might suffer and die. This is the one who in the Old Testament is lauded and honoured and worshipped as the Most High God, the Almighty, the one before whom there are no other gods save those which are the figment of men's imagination. This is the one whose works and deeds are described as marvellous and wonderful and whose right arm is strong and mighty. And now he hangs battered and bruised on a cross. What's going on here? Well, Mark tells us, Jesus is cursed as if a transgressor and a sinner. If you read verses 27 and 28, you look at verse 34, and then from verse 37, Jesus is cursed as if a transgressor and a sinner. That's what's going on here. With him they also crucified two robbers, we're told. God saw to it that the whole point of Christ's death would be rammed home. He who had done no sin, in whom there was no deceit, was numbered with the transgressors. He was treated just like these other two common criminals. It was in that atmosphere, it was in that situation where Jesus found himself. Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53, and in, and in Isaiah 53, the, the full section there reads, he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And Paul's simple summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Christ died for our sins. And when he wrote to the Galatians, he explains it like this in Galatians chapter 3 at verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's that? Well, the wages of sin is death. How has Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law? Having become a curse for us. 
For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, Jesus had to get to that cross that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And he writes to to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What are all of these verses and many others like them saying? That Christ went to the cross. But not just that, Christ took himself to the cross as the substitute for sinners. It was for my transgressions and sins that he went to the cross. He took my guilt and shame upon himself. The term that we use is that our our sins, my sins, are imputed to Christ It's like my sins became his sins. He was without sin, but took my sins as if they were his own. I am the one who deserves to be between those two thieves. But Jesus went willingly in my place and took my punishment for me. Can you say that? J.C. Ryle again helpfully says this. Why did Jesus endure all of this? Why did he go to the cross? It was so that we who are miserable transgressors, both by nature and practice, may be reckoned innocent for Christ's sake. It was done that we who are worthy of nothing but condemnation may be counted worthy to escape God's judgment and be pronounced not guilty. It was that we who are born in sin and children of wrath might be accounted blessed for Christ's sake. It was done to remove the curse which we all deserve because of sin. And how did God do that? He laid it all on Christ. Hence, Christ experiencing what it is to be forsaken by God in verse 34. Forsaken by God. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that at that point Christ ceased to be God. Not at all. Nor does it mean that there was some kind of cosmic rift within the triune Godhead. No, not at all. Now, what it meant is that Jesus felt and knew the Father pouring out all of his fury against sin upon his own Son. And Jesus was actually experiencing the wrath of God against himself as he took it instead of us. The agony, the torment of condemnation, which should be mine, known and experienced in full by Christ for me, for you if you're a Christian, for you if you will trust in him as he hung on the cross. And we read, don't we, that God caused a great darkness to fall upon the land as his son endured these agonies. 
We're told that the crucifixion began at the third hour, that's in verse 25. Many of you are aware the Jewish day in terms of hours ran from six in the morning till six in the evening. And so it was nine o'clock in the morning when Jesus was crucified. And he hung there for three hours, enduring all of this ridicule and mockery. And then at the sixth hour, verse 33, that's 12 noon. The middle of the day in the Middle East, when the sun's at the highest point in the sky, a great darkness fell, and it lasted for three hours till three in the afternoon. We have no way of explaining what caused that darkness. And you know, we do not need to concern ourselves in trying to explain it other than the fact that God brought a great darkness down to hide the gaze of men from the suffering Christ. And we do not need to concern ourselves with trying to explain that darkness because something of far greater significance was happening on the cross. If you can read this, and be more interested in how it could be dark for three hours in the middle of the day than the fact that Jesus is on the cross, then you're definitely not a Christian. And he cried out with a loud voice. As we read through Luke and John, we'll hear more of some of the things that Jesus said. But he cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. And we'll discover more concerning those final moments when Jesus died. So make sure you're here the next two Sundays. But look at what Mark records there in verse 38. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Way over possibly on the other side of the city, where no one was looking, where though no one was there to hear the great ripping noise. In the temple in Jerusalem, there were increasingly restricted areas. If you wanted to visit the temple in Jerusalem, as you first arrived, there was a very large open courtyard where anyone could go. It didn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. Everyone was welcome to, to enter that initial courtyard area and you could have a look around. But then as you proceeded onwards, uh, you came to a place where only the Jews could enter. No Gentiles beyond this point, the signs would say. Then as you carry on further and further into the temple, um, a place where only the men can go, then a place where only the priests can go, where the priests would conduct all of their temple services and offerings and so forth, and then finally, right at the heart of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, curtained off from everywhere else. Behind the curtain, the Ark of the Covenant, and only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement, where a blood offering was taken, sprinkled on the mercy seat on top of the Ark for the forgiveness of sins. And th this most holy place separated by this thick curtain. And this is the curtain, the veil, which God himself tore down from top to bottom. 
the way to forgiveness, the way to reconciliation with God has been established once and for all through the Lord Jesus Christ as he died on the cross. All of these Old Testament ceremonies and rituals that have taken place in this building for centuries. Ceremonies which, yes, God established with Israel, but they're no longer required. They're all gone now. The letter to the Hebrews makes very clear they were only ever intended to be temporary pictures, types, shadows, until he of whom they spoke had come. And now he's come and he's done his work. He's died. God's once for all and perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus was slain for me at Calvary. Crowned with thorns was he at Calvary. There he in anguish died. There from his opened side poured forth the crimson tide at Calvary. Pardoned is all my sin at Calvary. Cleansed is my heart within at Calvary. Now robes of praise I wear. Gone are my grief and care. Christ bore my burdens there at Calvary. Wondrous his love for me at Calvary. Glorious his victory at Calvary. Vanquished are death and hell. Oh, let his praises swell. Ever my tongue shall tell of Calvary. Is that your testimony this morning? In the instant that our Lord drew his last breath, the work of atonement for a world's sin was accomplished. The ransom for sinners paid. The kingdom of heaven is thrown open wide to all who will believe in Christ. Have you believed on him? Will you do that this morning? And all through these verses, you realize you cannot escape the voices of mocking, cynical people as they pour their scorn upon Christ, convinced that they've finally shown him to be a total fraud and that he'll soon be gone. In verses 29 and 30, some in the crowd remember actual words that Jesus had said and they hurl them back in his face, convinced that they've come to nothing. Look at him hanging there, how pathetic. Exposed now as the charlatan that he really is, so they think. He'll soon be of no further consequence, and we can finally get on living our lives without him. I wonder, perhaps is that you this morning, Maybe not quite, so, not quite so outspoken. Perhaps maybe not quite so impolite. But, but maybe, well, you just can't wait for this service to end. You just can't wait for this Lord's Day to be over. And then you can get on with the next six days and hopefully the rest of your life without Christ. Just like the crowd. My friend, if that's you, you are turning your back on the greatest thing that God has ever done since the creation of the world. And you're choosing condemnation instead of forgiveness.
and you are choosing hell instead of heaven? Or will you, like the centurion in verse 39, see what God wants you to see? Will you see what you need to see? That this man hanging on the cross truly was, truly is, truly always will be the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. How can we read this passage and not have the deepest sense of Christ's inexpressible love for the world? We are corrupt, evil, miserable sinners. The Lord Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the maker of all things, who for our sakes voluntarily endured the most painful and agonizing and disgraceful death. Surely, the thought of one who could love you to that degree should cause you to fall before him in sorrow and repentance of your sins and to believe on him who came into this world to lay down his life for sinners. Surely the thought of this love should constrain you daily not to live for yourself, but for him ready and willing to present your body as a living sacrifice to him who lived and died for you. To live with the cross of Christ ever before you in all that you say, all that you think, all that you do. Nothing but Christ and him crucified.